Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast in hours two. I'm your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget Keys. So this week, we're coming to, to, to you to talk about the episode of Murder, She Wrote entitled One Good Bid Deserves a Murder, appropriately enough. Um, so Bridget, do you want to give us a summary of this episode? Sure. So this episode hinges on some stuff that happened before the episode starts. There was this famous model actress, Evangeline, uh, and she kept a diary. And Evangeline is now dead, and everyone is fighting for her diary because it contains presumably all these salacious secrets. Um, her diary is going to auction, and someone asks Jessica to go to the auction with a million dollars and get the diary so that no one can learn its dirty secrets. And so, of course, we have lots of mayhem as all the people who want the diary are scheming against each other, and the auctioneer turns up dead, and the guy who hired Jessica in the first place also turns up dead. Right. So- and I didn't even say the most important part, did I? You did not. <laughs> this is our second Harry McGraw episode. So uh, it, it's really – it's funny how he encounters Jessica because she's in Boston for this auction and um, somebody ends up dead and so they're like, we better bring her down to the police station because she seems like she probably did it. And at the police station, there's Harry getting out of jail after spending another night there and he's all beat up as usual. Uh, and, you know, Teach, what I thought was so interesting was the way that he is, like, not important to this plot at all. He just decides to attach himself to Jessica and look after her. And it's really sort of narratively confusing, but it was also, like, really sweet. Well, sweet up to the point that he doctors her drink so he can get a hold of the diary to make a photocopy of it. Okay, yeah, that he did non-consensually drug her and steal something from her, yes. Which, you know, I gotta say <laughs> that as soon as that happened, I was like, uh, okay, that makes me look at Harry McGraw in a very much less sympathetic light. <laughs> yes, if we think in terms of, like, the way we understand things like that today, but if we think about a film noir and we think about, like, the 30s or the 40s, people were always drugging each other to go to sleep to do things. That's true. Uh, less, not, less frequently, we're friends drugging other friends. That's that's a, a bit unusual, even in the noir canon. But I, I'm actually glad glad that you brought up the noir um, aesthetic because I think this is another murder she wrote episode that's very much in conversation with the conventions of noir. Obviously, Harry being the most notable example with his, you know rapid fire dialogue and the sort of quippy remarks that he makes um, um to to among others a film producer at which at one point he's like i've never i've never punched a dame but i'm willing to take you know make this be the first time which anytime anyone uses the word dame you're automatically yeah, yeah. you're automatically in conversation with film noir that's just one of the sort of the vernacular if you will of of the noir uh, tradition has that term but it's also true that, you know, the whole story of like a diary and some object that everyone's trying to get is very, you know, noirish in the way that say very Maltese Falconish. Exactly. And I think that obviously, and I was saying this to you in the pregame that I think one of its most important intertexts is Laura, which if is a film noir about uh, with who stars Jean Tierney as the title character who was supposedly killed, but is actually still alive. But it's all about who might have been motivated to murder her. And a portrait plays a very large role in this and obviously one of the first scenes we get in this episode is jessica gazing at this very beautiful and lush portrait of evangeline and like this sweeping red gown so that was what my mind immediately left to i just want to circle back to something you said because harry does say i've never punched a woman but i might tonight um 
And we immediately cut. And the next scene is Harry with a new black eye. So um, just so that people don't think that Harry goes around punching women, he did not punch her. In fact, she punched him. Right. <laughs> and I also want to add that, you know, to the noir, you know, part of film noir is that we never know if we can really fully trust the protagonist. Like he seems like a good guy, but he always gets sort of embroiled in these sort of amoral things um, and swept up in the crime that he's supposed to be investigating. And, you know, Harry uh, initially says he's going to look out for Jessica. And then once he understands that this is all about some diary that's everybody wants a piece of, he's like, the reason he drugs Jessica is so he can make a photocopy of it. And so if he can't sell the original because it's Jessica's guarding it, um, then he has this great idea that he's going to go around and try to sell this photocopy. Although it makes me wonder, why didn't you just sell it, like, just keep the original and sell it anyway? Like, I guess maybe because Jessica would have known it was him, but mm-hmm. he doesn't seem to have very many scruples, so I'm not really sure. I guess maybe he values her friendship enough that he was Yeah, that's to- what I was going to say. It's just, like it's sort of murky, right? Like, we see him in the bar hawking it to one after another of the other – of the people who wanted to buy it. Um, so it seems like Harry's really just in it for the money, but then – he tells Jessica, oh, I was never going to do that. I was trying to flesh out the killer by seeing who would try to buy it the most, you know. And so you're not really sure if he, who he's telling the truth to. Mm-hmm. But that's part of the fun of Harry. And I think that that's very in keeping with film noir, too. Oh, absolutely. And it's also true. I mean, you were saying that the hero is often caught up as a suspect. And I mean, for a brief time, Jessica is, you know, a suspect. <laughs> Yeah, our police lieutenant thinks she's murdered people twice in this episode. Right, which I mean, usually the the skepticism is about Jessica's like meddling, l- not her actually having killed someone. Not her killing. Yeah, well, they find her. So the first time, uh, we should say it's um, Herd Hadfield plays the auctioneer. Um, so he, of course, was last seen as Leo in the first KGB episode with the ballet. And I love right. how we're just pretending that he's not Leo. And um, Hurt Hadfield was in the picture of Dorian Gray. He was Dorian Gray. So he and Lansbury have been friends for 40 years at this point. I mean, he introduced Lansbury to her husband. So I also just love, like, they're just playing the scene and pretending they're total strangers. Like, how fun, right? Like, mm-hmm. someone you've known that long and you're pretending to be strangers. Right. That's, I think, also the intertext when they're gazing at the portrait. Like, it's, I mm-hmm. think, another a callback to the portrait of Portrait Dorian of Dorian Gray. Gray, yeah. So he ends up dead, and Jessica is holding the diary, like, standing over his body. So it's like, that's why she gets arrested, because it's right. pretty suspicious, even for Jess. Yeah, that and she has a million-dollar check that's been made out to her by her actor friend that she meets at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of, shall we say, circumstantial evidence suggesting that you know, the lady, Jessica Fletcher, might in fact be the murderess. Okay, I really need you to stop saying S because, you know, it's diminutive and you always do that. You say authoress, murderess. Like, let's be feminist and just use gender neutral terms. Just as a brief aside, remember the the audible snark where they were like, you take too much time correcting each other? This is what they're talking about. (laughs) So... The thing is that Lieutenant Casey, though, he's our police officer. And I think what's interesting to me, Teach, is that although he does, like, suspect Jessica and he hauls her down to the police station twice, um, she kind of is just like, oh, come on. You know I didn't do it. And he's like, all right, you can go. Yeah, I mean, she, 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 I mean, she does say several times, like, this is ridiculous. How could you possibly suspect me? It's like, well, I mean, you've been around the block a few times, Jess. You know that, like... This looks, this looks pretty. pretty <laughs> this looks pretty fishy. I mean, you. I, oh come on! I didn't do it. You know that. Just let me go. 
you're a sus and she's like you're a suspect and she's like but not a real one come on I mean, how could i jessica fletcher possibly be you know responsible for this murder i'm just i'm gonna try that the next time i have any like interactions with the police i'm just be like oh come on you know i didn't the next time you're you suspected of having committed a murder <laughs> i've never committed a murder and i've never been entangled with the police but if if it happens, I'm just going to be like, come on, you know, you know, I didn't. But isn't do it. that what someone who murdered someone would say that they had never murdered someone? Right, right. I'm just saying. Like, actually, if Jessica respected law and order and due process, she would be like, I need to stop investigating. I need to allow the police to do their job. And I understand that you need to lock me up for 24 hours because you're just following the clues. Right. But no, she's an anarchist, TJ. She's an absolute anarchist. Yeah, I mean, J.B. Fletcher, anarchist. I think that is that that should have been the title of the show, really. <laughs> Maybe that's her season two persona. For season one persona was shoe fetishist. <laughs> yes, but I will say, I mean, to to return to a moment to like to Harry, I find that like I loved Jerry Orbach as an actor because I just think he captures that kind of persona so well like it's clearly a training ground for lenny briscoe and law and order but like Mm -hmm. he is so perfectly cast as that kind of uh, what is what is the the producer call him a two-bit gumshoe or something to that Mm -hmm. effect like he really does inhabit that kind of 1940s personas remarkably well like i think that that's a real testament to his skill as a performer that he so effortlessly channels the you know the film noir heroes or anti-heroes i suppose might be a better word of an earlier period of of hollywood so i just think we need to give a, a lot of credit to orbach and you know even though as you rightly pointed out earlier he's not really necessary to the plot it's really fun to see him and he really is a sort of breath of fresh air what it, what is otherwise in my humble opinion a rather convoluted plot that yeah. doesn't make a great deal of sense upon close scrutiny and which but if it's if it is a conversation with film noir that happens to be true of many film noirs too so <laughs> perhaps it's deliberate well let's let's dive in a little bit then and explain some of the details so so the people vying for the diary, the sort of story of what happened to Evangeline is that um, we, we have our psychiatrist trying to get the diary because she was seeing Evangeline and she had prescribed Evangeline lots of drugs to manage anxiety, depression. I'm not sure. All of the above. I don't know if it's ever said. Uh, and there's it's sort of implied that these prescriptions might not have been necessary and she might have just been keeping her drugged um, and keeping her sort of hooked on coming to the psychiatrist for money. And then we have Richard Bennett, the actor who hired Jessica, uh, who I guess really did love her and just wants the diary destroyed to protect her reputation. And then we have uh, Sal Domino, who is part Hugh Hefner, part mafioso, and he's like a part Sydney Greenstreet. Oh yeah, or Sydney Greenstreet, and he's like this publishing guy. And he and a film producer are teaming up um, because they don't have enough money individually, but maybe together the film producer suggests they can buy the diary, and then he can publish it, and she can buy the movie rights and turn it into a movie, and they can make lots of money. And then we have a lawyer who is representing an ambassador to question mark who lives in the U.S. somehow, even though he's an ambassador. It's all very confusing. And this ambassador wants to run for president, but he had an affair with Evangeline. And so if it comes out in her – you know, her diary is made public and it comes out that he had an affair with her, uh, he would not be able to get the nomination for president. By the way, how quaint does that seem from a 2022 perspective? (laughs) 
<laughs> like all you did was have an affair with a consenting adult. Like really, that's not. Oh God, never not. <laughs> Heaven forbid. It takes a lot more these days. Yeah, a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's like this whole. Okay, so this like this whole pool of suspects, and there's something about like sex and scandal and drugs in L.A. But that's all like backstory, right? We don't actually see any of that. We never even see Evangeline except for this picture. Like, she, right? She's not even a real person. Um, we never see the ambassador. He's just a voice on the telephone. Mm-hmm. I don't even think we hear his voice. I think we just hear one-sided conversations. Right. So there's a lot that's uh, maybe sort of confusing because it's all off-screen about the plot. Right, and then it turns out that the diary was also just like a false flag operation that Sal the whole time. Which, by the way, can we talk about how great of a name Sal Domino is? Like, as in Sal Domino is a really good name. Like, it's I mean, if we're talking about this this episode as a noir, like that is a quintessentially noirish name. Not to mention that Vic Tabak does really kind of embodies that sleazy mafioso kind of performance. But but he's also Hugh Hefner. Like he's wearing like a red silk robe and his, the magazine he publishes is called Boudoir and he's got like pictures of glamorous women all over his place. So I think he's supposed to also be like Hugh Hefner. Yeah. It's a very strange combination. Plus his, <laughs> plus his house is like, like drenched with like hardwood and red padding and upholstery. It's. Well, yeah, because you know, that's sexy, right? Red padding. Yes. Sexy. <laughs> I was just, I, I was. I, I was a little mortified, but I mean... I, I, it's the Boston version of the Playboy Mansion. I guess. And it's quite... <laughs> I would think the word I was looking for would be garish. <laughs> well. But as it turns out, the whole the whole diary is just a charade on his part to drive up to drive publicity. You know, because he the, he manufactured this whole kind of thing. Because he owns the diary to start with. And he owns, yes. And is just doing all of this as a means of getting people to... So he was even going to go to the auction and bid right. on it. As part of the right, which makes stone. the whole like diary thing seem like both diegetically, but also like extra diegetic, like kind of a red herring. Like it's kind of like the thing that seems to matter, but doesn't really. And so, yeah, I mean, exactly. But again, yeah. I mean, but if you're familiar with noir, or even with like the films of Hitchcock, you know, it's clearly a classic MacGuffin. Like it doesn't really matter as much as it seems to, in terms of the narrative. Did you think we should explain what a MacGuffin is? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, basically, it's you know, it's a it's a, usually an object within a film that seems to have significance, but as it turns out, is really a, not actually relevant to the unfolding of the story. Yeah, but it's it's not just it seems to have relevance. It seems to be the thing that's making the plot go. Right. And then we learn like actually, it didn't matter at all. Yeah. We also, I didn't even say it, like, we also have, like, a scene where we learn that a judge has been in the evidence room at the police station tampering with evidence, like, ripping pages out of the diary. Um, so it's like, this, there's this sense that this guy who wants to run for president, the ambassador, has, like, the whole town on his payroll. Right. I mean, this is real scandalous stuff. I mean, that's what strikes me about this episode, is that it seems to just, like, sk- I mean, I like this episode, but it seems to just kind of, like, skate on the top of, like, the dark under, the, it, of its mm-hmm. own, like, dark underbelly. Like, mm-hmm. we get glimpses of this sinister underworld of, you know, salacious sex gossip about the celebrity. And then also, as you just said, like the, the judge being in on it and, you know, tears out pages and all this other stuff. But we don't really, but none of those pay off, which is why I refer to it. None as- of those pay off. And we don't actually get a lot of details. We just get sort of hints about scandal, but we don't actually get any lurid details, much less see or hear anything. Right. 
And the whole episode is like, it's daytime, it's bright, it's Boston. Right. So it's, it has this like visual aesthetic that is really in contrast with like, as you said, the sort of darkness that lies underneath. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it, it's a narrative. Like I, that was what I, cause I had to re- I rewatched it just to kind of refresh my memory of it since it had been a while since I'd seen it. And I, I liked it a lot more than I did the first time as, cause what really helped me to like make sense of it or what little sense I could make of it ultimately was if I read it as a noir and read it sort of narrative weirdness as being noirish, then I felt it was more explicable for me. Mm-hmm. We should explain what ultimately happens. So ultimately it's not any of the people who were bidding at auction, um, who stole the diary or killed the auctioneer played by Herd Hadfield or, the actor Richard Bennett, who had hired Jessica. Um, it turns out that the guy who worked at the auction house in the warehouse, uh, ha- this, this is, I'm going to struggle over this because this is a little bit of a stretch, I think. The guy who worked at the warehouse had an affair with Evangeline. It's unclear how they knew each other. Maybe I missed it. And he was going to steal the diary, but then Richard Bennett caught him. So he killed Richard Bennett. And then at some point, Radford, the auctioneer, he says, came after him. So he killed him too. But I don't understand why the auctioneer came after him. We never really learned. Richard Bennett was supposed to be in Barcelona, but he wasn't in Barcelona. I don't think we ever learned why he wasn't in Barcelona. And the guy then tells us, this is all in his confession at the police station. And then he's like, yeah, the thing is, is that I just, Evangeline had suffered so much. I didn't want her diary to come out because I didn't want her to struggle anymore. She was so addicted to drugs and she was struggling so much. And that's why I put her out of her misery. And then you're like, wait, wait, what? You? So we learned he also killed Evangeline in the first place. Yes. This is totally wild. So this is part of the reason I thought, you know, I called the diary a MacGuffin because the conclusion of the film ultimately doesn't really, t- I mean, it only very tangentially has to do with the diary. <laughs> But I'm also just like, why is this guy confessing everything? Like, I don't know. Well, actually, we need to even back up. So when Harry and Jessica and the police arrive at his apartment, they have a search a warrant. warrant, which I'm curious then, like, what ev- by with what evidence they managed to because you had to, you know, you had to the show- evidence that Jessica figured out he uses a nickname. But I was. I if that doesn't make sense to you, listeners, because you haven't seen the episode, do not worry, because it doesn't make sense after you've seen the episode. Twice. <laughs> <laughs> I I was I, I was thinking, how did you get the how did you get the this warrant? Like I the need search warrant. Yes, they have a search warrant, and yet the police officer is alone. He has nobody to help him search. Not to mention Harry, except two private citizens, and then Harry picks the lock, right, which of course would render any evidence they get inadmissible anyway. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. But we kind of know there must be something in his apartment because the first time Harry and Jessica go to talk to him long before they suspect him, they're just trying to get information about the auction and stuff. Uh, he like opens the door and then quickly closes it and makes them go in the laundry room and watch him do laundry. He won't talk to them in his apartment. So we're sort of led to believe there must be something scandalous inside his apartment. And indeed, once they go in, we see the entire wall is creepily full of Evangeline pictures. Um, so we know he was obsessed with her. Right. And I mean, it, 
I have questions. Let's put it that way. Do you think he was even her lover? Do you think he made that up? Well, I mean, because he seems to imply in his confession that they had known one another prior to her becoming a star. And that's what led her to break up with him. Because as he puts it, like she needed to be with the right Mm. people and all that stuff. Yeah, because she dumped him for Richard Bennett. Right. And she needed to like, you know, solidify her star persona by dating other big names and other celebrity folk. But you know, I, I hadn't thought of that, but it does, you know, having, when you asked me that question, I actually think maybe it is delusional because he's played in such a way, Jessica responds to him in such a way that it seems as if there's just something, sli- to put it like as gently as I can, there seems something slightly off about him. Like there's an abstracted air to his performance that suggests that, you know, there's just something off. I get, I, there's really no other way to put it, I don't think. Like, he just seems... I think we're supposed to think he's psychotic. Yeah, and like, because there's a gentleness with which Jessica interacts with him that is, you know, suggests as much. That, you know, he's a literal, like, tip, or not literal, but he is a figurative ticking time bomb, it seems like. Mm-hmm. But then he just sort of, I, again, I couldn't quite figure out why he murdered Bennett. Because he caught him trying to steal the diary. Yes. But the real question is, what was Bennett doing there? Right. Bennett hired Jessica and said he was going to Spain. Yes. So And that's never explained. Right. And also like I I, I was also just like why did he then rush into just confessing to him having murdered Evangeline? Like, mm-hmm. also, why is her name pronounced Evangeline? Like, who pronounces it that no, way? No, only JB says that. Doesn't everyone else say Evangeline? No, that's, I think most of them say Evangeline. No, just Jessica, I think. Well, we'll have to go rewatch. But also, it's a strange way to pronounce it, regardless of whether it's just Jessica <laughs> or everyone else. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I think it's it's also it's just a weird name and then we're never given a last name so it's sort of like she's so famous you know right she's like a Madonna share a, a Madonna like she just has one name and it's an it's an unusual name right so I'm just like why does he just kind of rush right into being like oh yeah I killed her because she was suffering mm-hmm. I did it because I loved her he says and I don't know the whole uh- ladies that is not love yeah in case in case you missed that memo at some point along the line that is not love. I'll tell you what is love. What is love is what happens in the next scene, Teach. Right, which is? Well, Jessica has permission from the estate now that, like, the actual owner has been determined. She has permission to destroy the diary, which she does. She chucks it in the fire because it's private. Uh, And she knows Harry has a photocopy. And she's like, come on. And he's like, you're nuts. Like, this is worth so much money. She's like, come on. And he does. He burns it. And then he laughs. And our freeze frame is him putting his arm around her and wincing because he's all beat up and it hurts. But they're smiling and laughing and he's hugging her. And it's just so adorable. And like, look, she's made him do good. Yeah, after he drugged her. So, you know, I mean, there is there is redemption for, you know, giving him giving her a Mickey. You know, in his defense, she didn't seem all that put out by it. And this is coming from the person who corrected me about using the word actress or murderess. <laughs> so the next morning, she's like, that's so weird that I fell asleep last night. And then, uh, like, it takes her like five seconds. And she's like, you probably drugged me and went off and made a photocopy, didn't you? Because she's Jessica. Of course, she knows what he did, right? Right. But she loves him. It's there's like a a lovable scoundrel, you know, sort of trope. I think between the two of them. So what you're saying is, is that if you got into procured a salacious diary and I roofied you basically and took it to make photocopies, you would view that as a sign of and be willing to forgive me afterward. Is that what I'm getting? Not on your fucking <laughs> life. No way. That is such a violation. Yes, of course it is. But Jessica doesn't seem to mind it. 
That's my point. Mm, yes. <laughs> well, she loves him. I don't know why, but she loves him. And more curiously, he seems to love her. I mean, we do. We left off in Tough Guys Don't Die. Like the last thing that happens is he's like, we should go into business together. So he does clearly like have some affection for right. her. But the fact that he like drops everything he's doing and he's like, Jessica, I'm going to protect you. You're my client now. I mean, I do appreciate that he defends her from the like the predations of the police. Like, yeah. And I, I think yeah. that, you know, we don't always, like, Marsha doesn't always take this line, but this is a remarkably, like, not quite anti-cop episode, but, you know, there's enough criticism of the police as an institution and its corruption, you know, as, coming from Harry especially. But also, as we see, like, you know, if, if a judge can be cor- corrupted, you know, it doesn't speak very, you know, flatteringly of the criminal justice system. And our our police officer doesn't do anything corrupt, um, not within the realm of murder she wrote. I mean, he, but he does, of course, like, he, they're good. They go in the evidence room and he gets the diary out and he's like, here you go, Miss Fletcher. You might as well have a look at it. See if you can help me. Just like, <laughs> what is with you guys and letting JV tamper with evidence? Come on. All uh, right. It's, uh, yeah. Thankfully, I mean, if, if Marta Shewitt were procedural, there would be, I mean, a defense attorney would be like, this is too easy. I, I would love to see the sequel series. Like, let's imagine that we're watching CBS Sunday night and like eight o'clock we watch Murder, She Wrote. And then nine o'clock is like the sequel series where we see like every case from the week before is now in court and how it just gets summarily thrown out <laughs> once we start uncovering the details of how Jessica got involved. Nobody right. ever gets convicted. I mean, that's the part they don't show you. <laughs> it's like the Perry Mason of <laughs> clients always get off. Yep. Um, Teach, we need to talk about fashion because she is crushing it in this episode. Did you notice? I did notice. She was quite spiffy, as we would say. It's very elegant Boston attire. Like the first time we see her, she's wearing this black skirt and blazer with this beautiful, that's not the first time, but this beautiful blue silk shirt with a bow. Um, later, she's wearing another shirt with a bow that's in golds and creams. And she just looks really, really elegant in this episode. Yeah. And I like that it um, it fits the tone. Like, we know Lansbury wanted her to be more stylish in season two because now she's wealthy, but it also fits the idea that she's in Boston in a big city um, and that she's like at an auction house with a million dollars in her pocket. So, of course, you want to like dress, you know, for the occasion. And speaking of wealth, I mean, she shells out $300 for a chess set. For, she does. For an antique chess set at, the, at this auction house, which, you know, as a struggling writer, I'm like, wow, to be able to just like on a whim – be like, oh, no, you can't give it to me, but I'll give you $300. And he was going to give it to her right. for free. And she's like, no, no, I'll buy it from you. Lady, take the free shit. Right. An antique chess set from the, what, the Spanish Inquisition or something? Mm-hmm. Or <laughs> and um, what I thought was interesting, Je- um, I almost called you Jessica. That's funny. Is that she, what's that all about? Why would I call you Jessica? If I had a dollar for every one of your mannerisms or outbursts that I didn't understand, I would be very rich right now. So I have no idea. Well, listen, Ms. Fletcher, um, what I thought was interesting was that she says she knows someone back home who would really love it, but we don't know who. So it's like, is it Seth? I was going to say it's probably Probably Seth. Seth, but we don't know for sure that it's Seth. But it's so sweet. She buys this really beautiful, and then she's stuck lugging around the box for the rest of the day. I mean, I can't imagine Amos has an, has an affection for antique chess sets. So I'm almost 
certain. No, no, it's definitely so not. So I'm Venus. almost certain that it's probably Seth. I can't imagine. I, what if it's for Leo? And then so she bought it from Radford, the auctioneer, played by Herd Hadfield, and she's going to give the chess set to Leo back in Cabot Cove, who is also played by Herd Hadfield. I mean, that is a possibility. That's my headcanon of what's going on. That's your, I was going to say, that's the headcanon. That's head the headcanon, head yeah. Um, the other curious thing was that she, when she runs into Harry, she says, it's been almost two years. Right, because she makes the remark that his black eye hasn't gotten better in two years. <laughs> How is this? I'm not healed, Harry. But um, I think that's curious because it, um, Tough Guys was like, I think, exactly 117. So exactly a year ago. Oh, well, that is an interesting little parallel. Yeah. So Murder, She Wrote is advancing faster than, um, you know, its episodes in real time, which is a curious choice to make because uh, that's going to age Jessica faster. Right. That's all. He's just shrugging. He's like, I got nothing to add to that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I, that, that, seems, that seems spot on to me. Oh, the other thing, Teach, that I don't understand at all is that um, we didn't tell people like about the chest. The chest set was this whole stupid thing that because she bought it, then the diary gets planted in it. And ultimately, it was Radford who planted the diary there. And then he claimed the diary had gotten stolen, which the police think Jessica must have stolen it because there it is in her chest set. Um, but like, we never actually find out why Radford did that. Cause Jessica says, oh, he probably faked that the diary was stolen and planted it on me so that he could get it smuggled out of the auction house and that he could have it later. But like, to what end exactly? Because he's going to have to like go to Cabot Cove and burgle her house. But she had even told him that it was going to be a gift for a friend. So he's going to have to figure out which friend's house to burgle to get the diary back. Like I said, this is one of those ones where I'm just like, I have literally just going to have to go with it to make sense of it. Okay. I mean, I mean, truly like I, cause it's so ornate and so, I don't even want to say it's convoluted. It's more like they're just tapered, like they're just narrative threads, threads that taper off. hanging everywhere, yeah. Yeah. Like, like it's Harry not- makes the photocopy of the diary that is so precious and worth $100,000, but then he stashes it in Jessica's hotel room. Why on earth? He lives in Boston. Put it in your own apartment. Right. As if he, she's not, uh, yeah. There she's going to find it. Of course she's going right. to find it. Yeah, lots of... Uh- Lots of questions for the writers on this episode. A lot <laughs> of questions on the from the writer. So, does does this one of your thumbs down episodes? Then? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I think because Harry saves it, despite his roofing. I think that he is, you know, an, a charming addition to the episode. Other- oh, you said despite his roofing, right? Despite. I thought you said just by his roofing, he saves the episode. That is such a wonderful plot point that that made the episode for me. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, go ahead. No, but despite that, I you know, he and I do enjoy the 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 dialogue. Also the other the you know, the the spark like sparking dialogue is what also saves the episode. Mm-hmm. It definitely helps to divert, divert one's attention from the rather <laughs> Harry is a big distraction from all the glaring problems in the episode. Basically. Plot. <laughs> yeah. But I love it and I absolutely love seeing how his relationship with Jessica has evolved. The yeah. ending is just so sweet. It is, yeah. Yeah. Was that all we have? That sounds like a good place to wrap up. All right. Well, for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I am your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And we will see you all next week. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. 
You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.